You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, out. I it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week's story is supported by Lavender Wind, bringing all things lavender from farm to you. LavenderWind.com for more. Quick note, we have live shows coming up January 6th in Seattle, January 10th in New York City, January 20th in Maine, and January 28th in London. StoryCollider.org for more details. This week's story is from Ed Yong. The story was recorded in November 2014 at the Book Club in London. So six years ago, I was driving down a road in Surrey, searching for David Attenborough's house. (laughs) Now, I should clarify two things. First, I did have an appointment, so I was not stalking David Attenborough. (laughs) And second, I will not tell you David Attenborough's address so that you can stalk him. (laughs) This story will feature a lot of David Attenborough and no stalking at all. So this road was in an especially posh part of Surrey. So every house was very was this very tall Victorian townhouse with like an SUV or a Mercedes parked outside on an ever so immaculate patio. And then there was this one house which had this beautiful wrought iron gate and fence. Um, And behind that, there was a small garden with trees and flowers and ivy climbing up the walls and a tree fern of the type you would normally find in a rainforest just by the door. It was the type of house where you imagine the owner throwing the windows open in the morning and like a toucan and a gibbon would just alight on his arm. (laughs) And that, without even having to look at the number, was obviously David Attenborough's house. And I had come there for an interview. Now, I first um, encountered Attenborough when I was a kid, when I first came to London at the age of six. And I went to the Natural History Museum, and I went to the gift shop, and I picked up a video box set, remember those, of a series called Life on Earth. And I remember it really well. It had a a tree frog on the cover, and on the back there was a quetzal, a beautiful green and red South American bird, And there was this very uh, friendly-looking, avuncular man cavorting with some gorillas. (laughs) And and I went home and I watched this thing. And, you know, I was already in love with wildlife and the natural world. But this series showed me things I'd never seen before. And the way it conveyed that information was just a league above anything I'd experienced. And like pretty much the rest of the country, I fell in love and I became a total fan. Um, and, you know, people, people, a lot of people can remember where they were when traumatic events happened in the world, like 
like 9-11 or Diana gets killed. And I can remember those too, in a lab on the toilet. But I can also trace key moments in my life to when David Attenborough documentaries came out. I remember sneaking out of my bedroom when I was eight to run downstairs to watch Trials of Life past my bedtime. I remember watching The Life of Birds in my school common room. I remember moving into the first flat that I rented with my now wife and seeing episode five of The Life of Mammals. I remember coming back from a ski trip to Whistler and seeing Life in Cold Blood. And that last one, the last of his life series, came out in 2008. And that was a year after uh, I went, uh, I was driving up down that road, not stalking him. The reason I was doing that was because um, for several years, I had entered a science writing competition run by the Daily Telegraph. And I got lots of runner-up prizes. And then I finally won the damn thing, which meant that I got a nice check, a publication of the piece that I entered in the Telegraph, and a lunch with all the judges, one of whom was Sir David. So I walked up to this posh Kensington restaurant and was waiting in the lobby, and in walks this guy who I'd only ever seen on this rectangular box before. And he shakes my hand and he says, congratulations, what do you do? And I say, I write a science blog. And he says, that's extraordinary. (laughs) I'm like... No, that's like me saying, I made this epic sandwich. (laughs) So I sat next to him for like this two-hour meal, and it was glorious. My God, it was glorious. He is as wonderful a storyteller um, in person as you would expect him to be. Um, He is incredibly modest. He takes very unkindly to any suggestion, to any kind of fanboyism, which was a shame because that was mostly what I did. Um, He's also amusingly a kind of cantankerous old man, so he really doesn't like any suggestion that he's important or influential. He says things like, I just point at things and say, ooh, look at that, and I've been doing that for many years, and people have just gotten used to it. He's also, you'll be delighted to hear, a total nerd. Um, He spent a long time competitively classifying the seafood platter that showed up with one of the fellow judges. This is heaven, heaven. So, So the meal's drawing to a close, and I think, I will never get this chance again. So I say, I have a blog, and you have a new series coming out, Life in Cold Blood. Can I have an interview? And to my delight and astonishment, he says, yes, just contact me to arrange a time. Here is my card. Now, I don't know if anything's changed since then, but certainly back then, David Attenborough did not do email. His card, which I still have, is just his name and his address. So I go home and I Google, how do I write a letter And I write him a letter reminding him that he was kind enough to grant me an interview. And a few days later, I get a call. And I pick up my phone, and the voice of the other end says, Hello, this is David Attenborough. And I come to my centers just quickly enough to say, Hello, rather than what I really wanted to say, which was, Oh, fuck off, Henry. Stop taking the piss. (laughs) So we arrange the interview. And amazingly, he wants to do it at his house. His house. (laughs) So... 
so I go to his, so I find the house and I go to the house and I don't know what you think David Attenborough's house is like. I was picturing like this Victorian explorer's living room, like so dark panels, furniture everywhere, like a fireplace, tribal artifacts, stacks of untidy books, um, maybe like a perch with an iguana or a, or a macaw on it. Um, there are artifacts, there are uh, books, there are paintings of wildlife, but other than that, it's like it's disturbingly clean and modern. It's all clean lines and an enormous telly, like the biggest telly I've ever seen. Um, and we, we do the interview, and this is early on in my journalistic career. I had never done an in-person interview before. This is my first, and I am hitting myself i am so nervous like half of my brain is thinking you are in david Hattimer's house and he just made you coffee and the other half is going ah <laughs> and it doesn't help that halfway through he invites he there's like behind the sofa he has a row of fossils because he's david attenborough and he invites me to start classifying some of the fossils <laughs> And I totally flubbed the first one. I say, I say it's like I think I think I say it's a seed pod, and actually it's the, the scale of some armored prehistoric fish. And the second one, mercifully, I say it's a vertebrate of some sort, and it is. It's a vertebrate of an ichthyosaur, which is an extinct marine uh, kind of dolphin-shaped reptile. And apparently, Attenborough found it in his back garden. Now, I don't know if all of us have ichthyosaur fossils in our back garden or if this is just the sort of thing that happens to you if you're David Attenborough. Like, somewhere in the Mesozoic, some reptile just went, I think I should die here. I think this would be a good spot. But, you know, I'm nervous and the, and the fossil thing is wonderful and bizarre but he's the most gracious interviewee he's enthusiastic with his answers and he is generous with his time this thing goes on for like an hour we talk about his new series we talk about where um i I ask him where in the world he would still like to go to the gobi desert uh what his outlook is for the future of biodiversity on the planet grim uh, whether there's been any animal that he's tried to film that's been totally uncooperative the answer is no but he has he once tried to go to Papua New Guinea to film Birds of Paradise and was denied for bureaucratic visa re- reasons, so pissed off to Komodo instead to just film some dragons, because that's what you do when your holiday plans go awry. Um, and I leave the house feeling on top of the world. Like This is my childhood hero. This is the man who has had an enormous impact on my life, and I just got to sit and chat with him for an hour. Um, and, it, and it's wonderful. And then a year later, Ida happened. So some paleontologists announced that they had discovered a fossil, a very beautifully preserved fossil of an ancient primate that they called Darwinius and that they nicknamed Ida. And their claim was that this thing was some missing link, that it was the ancestor of all humans, that it would revolutionize our understanding of our origins. And they created a big media splash to publicize their findings. There were, they talked to the usual journalists, but in a kind of weird, covert way with non-disclosure agreements. Um, no one could send papers out to their contacts for review. There was a 
there was a book that came out at the same time as the announcement. There was a press release um, that said, and I want to make sure I get this exactly right, world-renowned scientists reveal a revolutionary scientific find that will change everything. So nice and measured there. <laughs> and other paleontologists smelled a rat, or in this case, a lemur. Um, they said, hang on. I'm not sure that your evidence supports your claims. I don't think this thing is really a direct ancestor of us humans. It really looks like just another lemur. And over time, that objection seemed to bear out. It really does look like um, that early wave of hyperandarwinism was really, really over-exaggerated, and really, it is a lemur. And I remember watching this press conference where um, a journalist from New Scientist stands up and he asks John Horham, the scientist behind this discovery and the big splash, couldn't you have waited a bit and done a more rigorous analysis before you came out with this big media hoo-ha about our direct ancestor? And sitting next to Horham is Attenborough. And he looks up and his eyes widen. And I think that happens because he was part of the hype. He launched, he fronted a documentary that came out at the same time as the book and the news stories and the press release. They got the world's most trusted naturalist to, to narrate a documentary called The Link, uncovering our earliest ancestor, in which he outright says that this thing is of enormous importance and will change our understanding of our origins. And... People believe him. Of course you believe him. He's David bloody Attenborough. That face, that name, that voice, he says something. He lends it this imprimatur of complete authority and trust. Um, and if you looked at like Twitter on the days after this announcement came out, everyone was like, oh, wow, I love Sir David. Can't believe we found our earliest ancestor, whatever the fuck that means. Wow. Um, and I remember looking at this and being really kind of heartbroken because here was this man who I really did trust absolutely and he was wrong and not wrong in a kind of simple nitpicky way but wrong in a way that seriously misled a lot of people and once you start noticing one crack you start noticing more um I know a lot more than I did when I was eight and, or six and started watching these documentaries, or even since in the six years since Ida came out. I am a science writer. I, I am immersed in these fields that I'd only ever seen on screen. And I've written about loads of new studies that have refuted things that I learned in documentaries as a kid, um, things that were conveyed to me as fact, not things that were right at the time and then were later disproved in that wonderful self-correcting way that science does, but things that were basically naturalistic folk tales that never really had any kind of strong support or evidence behind them, but were conveyed as basically being fact. So things like cheetahs overheat when they hunt, myth. Komodo dragons kill their prey with dirty bacteria-laden teeth, myth. Uh, honey badgers are lured to honey by a bird called the honey guide, myth. Uh, a parasitic worm changes the behavior of a snail so it becomes more conspicuous to birds. Uh, that one's actually true, but we only knew it was true because of experiments done last year and not when I was six or when I was eight and Trials of Life came out and I heard about it then. 
And I find that when you start talking about these things, you get a lot of people saying things like, you're just nitpicking. Think of all the good that he has done. Who are you to criticize this sort of thing? What have you done? And I think we get this attitude because we love heroes, because we are people, after all. We like heroes. Um, And especially us who uh, are immersed in science, who do it or who talk about it and who write about it, we are so invested in this need to improve the public understanding of science, a field that we see as being um, attacked and assaulted or, or that breeds disinterest in people. We so badly want people to love it that we very quickly idolize people who talk about it well. And we take any criticism of them as some cold-hearted shiv in the back of the cause. And I think this is entirely the wrong attitude because I still love David Attenborough, right? So he was an inspiration in my life and that will never, ever change. And going around to that house and talking to him and classifying those fossils was a highlight of my career and that will never change. But what has changed is that I'm just a bit more careful. I don't trust him unequivocally. I try and bring the same critical eye to anything that he does that I would to anything, that any interview or any paper that I read. Because David Attenborough taught me to love science in many ways. But science is not about just being in slack jaw wonder at the greatness of the natural world. And it's certainly not about taking what you hear for granted, about accepting received wisdom unquestioningly. It's about always analyzing what you're told, about probing the boundaries of your ignorance, and about asking questions all the time. And it's a world in which you should always judge people based on their work, but where you should never judge a person's work based on them. And that's something that David Attenborough taught me too. Thank you very much. That was Ed Young. Ed is an award-winning science writer. His blog, Not Exactly Rocket Science, is hosted by National Geographic. And his work has also appeared in Wired, Nature, the BBC, New Scientist, and more. His first book, I Contain Multitudes, about how microbes influence the lives of every animal, from humans to squid to wasps, will be published in 2016. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. This week's podcast is brought to you by Lavender Wind. Lavender Wind grows lavender on Whidbey Island in Washington. They distill it, dry it, cook with it, make it into lotions, candles, sachets, baking mixes, jams, essential oils, teas, seasonings, soaps, and cookies. Shop online for all things lavender at lavenderwind.com. To get an online discount, use the code storycollider.2 at checkout. And on a personal note, that is my mom's company. So if you have some last-minute holiday shopping to do, we'd both much appreciate it. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Weck, Darren Barker, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Rose Evelith. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lana Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the book club for hosting the show, and to all my heroes for never having met me. Thanks for listening. <laughs>